I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Breton Putter, startup and high-growth company culture expert and author of Culture Decks Decoded, Transform Your Culture into a Visible, Conscious, and Tangible Asset. Netflix, HubSpot, LinkedIn, besides being among the most admired companies in the world, these firms have all well-defined, are all well-defined and ahead of the pack cultures. They craft culture decks and other vital materials to convey their values, mission, vision, and purpose inside as well as outside the organization. Startup and growth company culture expert Bretton Putter looks at outstanding culture decks created by top organizations. Any company can look at these culture decks and find the concepts that work. He is a contributor to Ford's, Forbes and founder and CEO of the Culture Gene, a company culture consultancy. Welcome to the show, Bretton. Nice to have you here. Catherine, really, really great to to have uh, to be on board. It's uh, great to be speaking with you. Great. So, uh, the big question, or the first question, I guess, why does this all matter? Why is culture critical to the success of companies? Why do we need a, a company culture? Yeah. So, so it's actually, I, I I love the question because every company has a culture, and if you don't nurture develop and manage that culture, it can go from being an asset to a liability. So essentially, you know, when a company forms, it's uh, two people getting together in a room and coming up with a great idea, and then they hire uh, a small team and start to grow the business and start to succeed. And the culture really forms as the business grows from those two people. So it's essentially the greatest asset a business has. And it's something that I believe companies should and, and uh, founders should start to nurture and, and develop from day one. So they have, to, they have, what you're saying is if they do that and they nurture it from day one, this company culture, they are going to have a competitive advantage. As, and as I understand it, you say that, uh, I mean, that's proven in terms of the research that's been done. But do most companies do that? Let's talk about startup companies because there are a lot of startup companies, a lot of new entrepreneurs. Do they actually create the culture or know what they're doing, or does that kind of evolve organically? Well, I've, um, I've interviewed over, over 45 CEOs of high-growth companies, and the interesting fact is that I had to speak to over 450 companies to speak to 45. So to answer your question, no. Only, only one out of 10 uh, CEOs of high-growth companies is doing anything about their culture um, in any form. And, and this, is, this sort of feeds back into my personal mission, which is to actually help define company culture as a um, as, a, as a business function in the same way that sales, marketing, and engineering are business functions, because I believe that's the missing piece of the puzzle right now in business. So if that's the missing piece of the puzzle, why is it the missing piece of the puzzle? You know, you're talking about marketing, growth companies, startup companies. They don't seem to want to hone in on this. Why not? Because they do hone in on other things that are related to the success of the company. Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I think the main reason is because, to be completely you know, frank, startup companies, high-growth founders, CEOs, teams are, are really overworked, and they, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty tough what they're doing. And so this currently culture is, 
it's, it's mainly, for the most part, it's invisible, subconscious, and intangible, which means that they can't, you know, most founders can't get their heads around it unless they've had the experience of working in a great culture before where they've actually seen the difference of, of what a great culture makes. And a lot of the companies now that are being founded are being founded by first-time entrepreneurs, first-time teams, which means that they don't really have an idea of what great culture looks like. And so um, the, 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 the founders that have some sort of additional sort of human inte- emotional intelligence, human intuition kind of get it and they sort of wing it. But as soon as the business starts to grow rapidly, that's where you see the wheels start to come off because people are being hired that shouldn't be hired. Behaviors are being enacted that shouldn't be enacted. And that's really why it's such a critical element. And it's, it's, it's the reason why it's so, you know, culture is difficult. Culture has, has been talked about for many years, but nobody yet um, has really defined it in terms of a business function. Well, let's, why don't you and I do that? Let's talk about that. So what is, give us an example. Let's talk, you know, create a, a real company or let's say a fictional company. You've got two people starting up a business. What's going to be, is the culture a reflection of their personalities? I mean, you can only, you know, if you're the CEO or you're the vice president of the company, it sort of has, doesn't it have to reflect who you are? You, you, I mean, talk to us about that. Sure, yeah. So um, the, culture, the culture is a reflection of, of, of it. let's say, Catherine, you and I were starting a business tomorrow. It would be a reflection of our values, what's really important to us. So what often happens, and actually there's, there's some research that demonstrates that 65% of startups fail because of management and fundamental um, founder management disagreements. So, so if we were to do this pro- properly, Catherine, you and I would set up a business and I would ask you, what's important to you? What's motivating you to do this? What are your values? You know, what, is, what, what behaviors are important to you? And let's say, you know, you said to me, you know, Breton, um, I really, you know, I, it's really important that I want to do something to, you know, save the world. I want to make the planet a better place. And I said to you, you know, Catherine, I kind of agree with you, but I'm way more interested in money. Those are two people who their, their, their cultures are, are, are you know, the values and their culture are different. And, the, the, you know, you and I probably shouldn't start a business together in that sense. So it starts at the, really, at, at, at the very, very beginning of, of how a business starts. And actually, co-founders, a lot of co-founders make this mistake. 65% of companies don't succeed because of this. And, but let's assume that you and I are both on the same page. We both want to do the same thing. In the, in the early stages... Culture is the way we work together. So we communicate well. We, you know, we, we, we know one another. So we kind of, we, we get to know one another better over time and we know how to work together. Then as we add more people to the team, the culture changes because we've got to add people to the way we work around here. So when you're five people, you have a certain culture, a certain way of working together. And then when we grow the business to 20 people, the way we work together changes because all of a sudden, We've got to bring in more structure and more process and so on. So when we've got 100 people or 250 people or 1,000 people, at each stage, the culture changes. And if you don't understand what your culture is during each one of those stages, then you don't understand really what your business is doing and why it's doing that. 
if you're hiring managers, you're getting to the stage past five people and then you need 100 people or whatever it is, then if you're going to hire managers at different levels, they have to reflect your culture. Let's say, as you said, if it's a business that's just primarily out there to make money, you've got to find the same managers who are managing people within your company who share that same value, that same culture. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, actually, you, you make a good you make a good point here. So, the I believe I believe that actually hiring for culture fit is the wrong thing to do because culture changes over time. You know, five people, twenty five, fifty, one hundred and fifty, the culture is changing. So, if you hire somebody at ten people who's who enjoys the chaos of working in a ten person startup, they're not going to enjoy working in a hundred and fifty or two hundred person chaos, lack of chaos startup because there's going to be structure and control and systems in place. But if you hire somebody for values fit, then that person has an above average chance of scaling with you all the way through the journey of the business. Because if our values match and what's important to us match, then we can scale the business together and we're not gonna, we're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna be hampered by the way the business works. Because if, if when there are 10 people, you know, we're all sitting in the same office, that's great. We're all communicating. But if there's 200 people and we've got five different offices around the country, then all of a sudden we have issues with communication. We have to structure communication. Some people don't like that structure. So it's more about, I believe, hiring against values fit versus culture fit. Give us an example. What companies have the best cultures? And also, the ones who do have the best cultures, what makes them better? I mean, specific companies so there's no there's no best or worst um, there's no there's no great cultures now, let me give you an example of that if if um, if if I was born into a ma- the, a, a mafia a business that's run by the mafia um, I would have no problem with putting a bullet through somebody's knee because that's the way it works and that's accepted and that's the way we've always worked for hundreds of years but actually if I'm outside of that I think that's a terrible culture so, so good and great or best or worst, I think I fundamentally um, uh, look at cultures as in strong or weak. So strong cultures are companies, uh, are companies that are, they have a clearly defined culture. They understand their mission, their vision, their values. And those are embedded deeply into the organization and lived where it's conscious, it's tangible, and it's visible. So it's not just visible in terms of being able to see it on the wall, but visible in terms of seeing how people behave, seeing how people hold one another to account. Weak cultures are where there is very high turnover. There's a lot of politics. There's a lot of um, uh, managing for the internal customer versus managing for the external real customer. There's a lot of um, managing expectations and covering covering one another's back pockets versus making sure that the the business looks after the customer. So I look at it as strong versus weak. And and a great example of a, of a strong culture is a company like NextJump. There's a you know I'm talking about extremely strong. So these these companies would be would be immensely powerful in terms of strong, but they're you know companies like. Decurion, Bridgewater, NextJump, Netflix, Zappos. These companies are almost perceived to be cults or cult-like, but actually they're just really, really strong company cultures. 
that's examples of the strong ones. How about, and maybe they don't last too long, but how about it now examples on the other side of, the, of weak companies? Are there companies out there that you see now, for instance, that are weak? Yeah, so if I, look at, if I look at most of the airlines, I would look at those as weak cultures. I would exclude Southwest and, and um, uh, some of the other, the other uh, recognized smaller operators. But if I look at the airlines, really they don't, you know, the customer is, is almost, it, 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 the, the customer is treated as a secondary artifact of having to fly the beast from one side of the, uh, from the, from, of the country <laughs> to the other. You know, it, 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 their, their luggage is just an unnecessary burden to carry onto the plane. Um, turnaround times are irrelevant. Customer service is, is not in any way hosp- hospitable and so on. So, you know, if you, you can actually take a whole industry and exclude Southwest and a couple of the others, but the, the whole industry of the airline industry is a disaster when it comes to culture. Um, they, they have weak cultures. They're driven. It's, it's a numbers-driven business. It's a um, cut costs, save money versus look after the customer, and the customer always comes first. And, well, actually, the customer in the case of Southwest comes second after the people, after the, the actual employees of the business. So without taking maybe a specific, uh, take the industry itself, what would you do to change it now? I mean, because it's, it's here. We've got all these airlines that you're saying are weak companies just because of, as you described, the reasons why. How would you change that? Or how, can that be changed? Uh, that's a really, really great <laughs> question. Um, <laughs> you're putting me on the spot, Chuck? I'm putting you um, on the spot. Tell us how to do it. <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Take a actually, shot. Yeah, the, the, I, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna give you a secret to company culture here, um, and and that secret is 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 quite quite uh, beautiful in its simplicity. So company culture is amorphous. It's invisible. It's subconscious. It's intangible. It's very hard to measure, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But actually, embedding culture is really simple. There are only six ways to embed company culture. And those six ways are how you reward and recognize, what you measure and control, how you invest and allocate inside the business, how you train, mentor, educate your team, how you behave in crisis situations, and how you hire, fire, and promote. So let me give you an example. If you are an airline, and you say customer service is important to us, but you don't reward and recognize it, you don't invest in it, and you don't train people around it, and you don't measure and control it, then it's not. It doesn't matter what's coming out of your mouth. So actually, if I was the CEO of one of these big companies, I would look at those things, those six things, and I'd go, okay, what are we rewarding and recognizing? How are we measuring and controlling? And then I would actually start to reward people for great customer service. If you look at a really good example of, of how to turn the, one of these massive, massive oil tankers around is Microsoft. Microsoft was heading into the dark waters of a slow death. Um, and, it, you know, Microsoft would have made a lot of money for the next 10 to 15 years if they'd continued on their Steve Bomber path. Along comes Satya Nadella, who is a, 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 a somebody internally, which is a real surprise to hire a CEO like Satya. But Satya's come in and he's just turned that business around. The business has increased its value by $250 billion fundamentally because of the strategy and the culture 
being in complete unison. So it is possible, is what you're saying. So it's not impossible. I mean, if, if Microsoft was able to do it, some of these big companies, as the example, the airline industry could do it. If they knew the sequel, how, why don't they know the secret or what's holding them back? Or is, is this really a secret secret in terms of what we've been talking about? And, um, and other airlines, as you mentioned, there are some that do follow these what did you, the six kinds of behaviors. Um, Maybe that's a couple questions, but, I mean, is it the bottom line that holds them back? They're making enough money. Like you say, you know, Microsoft could have made a lot of money for the next 10 years and held up pretty well. But somebody within the company had the foresight to say, no, this really isn't going to work in the long run. Um, How do you get someone to, I guess, be aware of that within the company, which, as you say, is unusual, or outside the company? Yeah, so so this is the... um I think the, 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 it, there has to be a will over and above the uh, fundamental financials of the business. So um, often in the case of Microsoft, it didn't happen because they did have a very healthy number of healthy businesses that were just churning out money. So Satya didn't have to make significant changes or make, you know, really change the, the finances of the business. He, he really had to tweak certain elements of the business. And he allowed the mobile, you know, the, the mobile, he, he, he wrote off the mobile business. He allowed desktop to start to kill itself um, and, and to overpromise and underliver. But, but really, the, I, I think, I think it, the system that, that these, these businesses operate within is, is, is part of the problem. So they've got to do, you know, they've got to report regularly. They, they, the long term, they, they, these, you don't, you don't, turn these tankers around overnight it's it's a it's a long-term process you know what Satya was doing uh it's, it's come to fruition now but it's taken him two years luckily the business was 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 you know it was expected to underperform so all of a sudden it's performing and everybody's loving the business but the airline industry i don't think has the same flexibility and and um uh give and take as in, in terms of a, a business that, 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 that had very strong shareholders and very strong founders still in place. So uh, can it be done? Absolutely. Um, it would take a serious, serious airline executive who understands it. And this has been done before. It's been done by Mullally at Ford. It's been done by different people um, over the course of time. But it really takes an, an individual, uh, the leader, the CEO, who has to come in and say, okay, there will be pain. Um, I'm going to work with the, 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 in the case of the airlines, I'm going to have to work with the unions. I'm going to have to work with, with different people. It's going to take us a lot of time. We've got to build the trust back up, uh, but it can be done. So leadership, 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 I guess is what I hear you saying. I mean, that's critical. Yep, that's absolutely. right. Yeah. It, uh, what about MBA programs? I'm saying, you know, as you're discussing, it takes, you know, a leader within a company, CEO or whomever. So uh, the top 10, let's say, MBA programs, how are they addressing this issue or are they or do they talk about it? Because I'm assuming that some of these guys and gals are going to go out and be heads of these companies. And are they performing like when they, you know, do they have that kind of information when they get their two year, go through their two year MBA programs? As far as I'm aware, um, no, I, I don't. I don't think. Uh, I do think there are, there are some schools that 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 have pieces of of the culture included, but there are not. To be honest, there are not many 
people who have really dug down into 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 culture from a um, to really understand the layers of the onion of culture. So, um, if 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 I, I to give you to give you an, an example, so let's say um, one of our values of our company is teamwork. Now, if if I ask you, I say, Catherine, what does teamwork mean to you? What would you say? What What does teamwork mean to you? Teamwork to me means working together as a team, being able to communicate and connect and discuss how the company's being run. And I think you mentioned crisis management, you know, being able to resolve crises within a company, uh, but being able to be collaborative. I guess that's the word, collaborative. And, and that's, that's exactly right. You know, the, your interpretation of teamwork is exactly right. However, my interpretation of teamwork is the team always comes first. And I'm right and you're right. So if we, if we go and you and I both join a company and that the, the company's value is teamwork, you're going to look at teamwork through your lens and I'm going to look at the word teamwork through my lens. And we're both, we could end up in a situation where we're faced with the same set of stimulus and input and the same question, but we could end up taking a completely different answer or a completely different route because your interpretation of the word teamwork is slightly different to my interpretation of the, teamwork, of the word teamwork, and they're both right. So what, what I'm talking about, the layers of the onion of culture, is if, the, if the, the value is teamwork, then the expected behavior that I would expect a company to define if it was my company, it would be my interpretation, which means the team always comes first. Now, if everybody who joins my company understands the value and the expected behavior, then they're all going to work in that way. They're going to they're understand that this isn't about the individual. This isn't about the company. This is about the team coming first. And so we're going to work together as a team to fulfill our, our, our mission and what we, what we need to achieve. And this is where companies make the mistake. They put the values up on the wall, but they don't help the individuals define the expectations of behavior against those values. So in my case, teamwork, the expected behavior is the team always comes first. And actually, I can go deeper into this onion in terms of the next layers of the onion, you know, if, if that would be of interest. Yeah, go ahead. So, so, so if, if the expected behavior is the team always comes first, how do we interview against that? Because what a lot of companies do is they interview against functional skills. Can you do the job? Can you prove to me that you can do the job? Who else can do the job better than you? But actually, that's not important because most people can learn and develop on the job. What's more important is that the individual fit the values of the company. So if our value is teamwork and the expected behavior is the team always comes first, the interview question where we interview this candidate against the expected behavior is, when last did you take one for the team? What happened? Why did you do that? And how do you feel about that right now? So all of a sudden, you're changing the question from how do you feel about teamwork or do you work well in a team? to a behavior-based question where they, they can't have actually prepared for this question. You know, candidates are really good at preparing for interview questions. In this situation, 
we, we, you know, we will throw a question at them that they wouldn't really expect because we understand what our behaviors are and the behaviors we want. And what I, what I, what I do working with my clients is we work out how to score those candidates. So we ask the same question. When last did you take one from the team? Why? What was the outcome and how do you feel about that? We ask each candidate the same question. So now we can score their answers. And when you score the answers, you create data versus gut instinct. Britton, so you're saying I would not be hired. <laughs> well, no, but I, I, on the contrary, I think, Catherine, you and I are starting the company, so we can hire exactly who you want to hire. It, I, but if my definition of teamwork is very different than yours, or my value is different because I'm saying, it's, you know, my definition is teamwork. It's a collaborative issue. It's collaborative, but it's not the same definition or the value that you're talking about. Would you hire me? Um, how does that work? Well, what we would, okay, so, so if, we, if you and I were starting a business and your definition of teamwork and my definition of teamwork were radically different, at the end of the day, in terms of, in terms of this example, my, um, my interpretation, the team always comes first, and your interpretation, the collaboration, I wouldn't disagree with you. So you and I would both be on the same page. We'd, we, would, we may actually create more than, you know, we'd create two or three expected behaviors. So one would be the team always comes first. The second one might be collaboration is critical. Um, if, however, you know, if it, if it was about teamwork and, and um I was interviewing you and, and, and I asked you, I asked you a question when, you know, you, if you said to me, you know, Breton, I've been uh, leading teams for 20 years and I've been a really great boss and da, 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 da. And I asked you, when last did you take one for the team and, and why? Um, and you used, were you were uncomfortable answering that or didn't answer that uh, suitably? Then no, I, I would definitely, have, uh, you know, say, okay, thank you. But no, you don't fit this. You don't fit our values at the moment. Got it. Okay. Last question. This probably will be the last question. Um, you're the founder and CEO of Culture Gene. Yeah, well, two minutes, so I don't know if we have a lot of time. But Culture Gene, I'm assuming you follow all of the, just what we've been talking about today. Um, can you give us just a, a little kernel of um, insight into your company um, in terms of how you do it and how successful it is. Culture Gene. I guess you can go to culturegene.com for more information. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Um, yeah, so, so we're actually eating our dog food. So um, we, 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 our, our, our mission and, and vision, we, you know, our vision is to change the culture of business globally. Our mission is to um, really... Uh, help define uh, culture as a, a business function, and our values are, are, are very clear. We, we, you know, we value uh, the, the actually team, but not not teamwork, but our team as as a group of people, as individuals, as um, unique people. We we expect um, respect for diversity and inclusion, and through diversity diversity and inclusion, we actually bring a lot of insight into our business. But I, I, I wouldn't want to go through all of our values, but just to say No, that and I, we our, have a minute left, so you can't, but I want to be sure that people have the uh, website because culturegene.com and also Breton, B-R-E-T-T-O-N, putter.com for more information. And the title of his book is 
Culture Dex Decoded, Transform Your Culture into a Visible, Conscious, and Tangible Asset. Great having a conversation with you today. Uh, I learned a lot, and I know my listeners did too. Yeah, I did too. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is primary care physician Alex Lickerman, MD, and author of The Ten Worlds, The New Psychology of Happiness. Could it be that our basic beliefs and how to achieve lasting happiness are all wrong? Are we in need of happiness 2.0 in both life and at work? Dr. Alex Lickerman, a primary care physician, and Dr. Eidfrall, a clinical psychologist who later transitioned to a career in marketing, propose an entirely new paradigm about happiness and how it can be attained. Dr. Lickerman uses two decades of research and the latest science to guide readers to a better understanding of happiness. He's featured in Time, the New York Times, Playboy, and the Huffington Post. Welcome to the show, Do- Alex thanks or Dr. Lickerman. On. Yes, thank you. Nice thanks to have for you. having me on. So we're going to be talking about happiness, happiness, uh, basic beliefs about how to achieve lasting happiness. The ones that we have, you say, are all wrong. We need to start over. Yeah, so I, I guess I'd start by even the notion that it's our beliefs about what happiness is itself or what we need to be happy that itself determine how happy we are is kind of a novel concept. People usually think about uh, happiness is coming from things that they have, that they get, good things that they have or get. So, you know, uh, the spouse that they want, the job they want, the house they want, the life they want. 
Uh, and we're arguing that while those things uh, give one type of happiness, what really determines how happy we are literally moment to moment is our beliefs about happiness itself. And uh, if you were to take every belief that everyone on the planet, individual people have about what they need to be happy and you would slot them down into their core essence, we think that they slot down into 10 core beliefs about happiness. And we're going to argue that nine of them are actually wrong. And, and when I say wrong, I don't mean specifically or necessarily that they don't make us happy, but they don't give us the type of happiness we want, which is happiness that endures. They give us temporary happiness that we have to keep chasing after and is, is ultimately a, a dissatisfying type of happiness. So, so should we start with number one and look at why it doesn't, you know, and sort of tear, break, I don't know, tear it down, break it down and sure. understand, yeah, why that really doesn't give us long lasting happiness is what you're yeah. saying. Is it sort of like we get, we want immediate gratification? We make more money, we're happy for the moment or maybe longer <clears throat> than the moment, but it doesn't really work out. Um, That's so, right. All right let's, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the basic, it, it's been known for a while, psychology, uh, psychological research has, has shown that we are all on, on the thing that's called the hedonic treadmill. <clears throat> and by that, I mean, whenever we get something that makes us happy, meaning an attachment, uh, it, it temporarily gives us this boost in happiness. It's like chewing gum, which at first is very flavorful. But as we continue to chew it, and as we continue to have whatever attachment we have, it just becomes part of our lives. And the flavor always fades, and we sort of slide back down into our baseline happiness. And interestingly, this turned out to be the case true too, for when bad things happen to us, and our happiness takes a hit, it tends to sort of fall for a while, but then most of the time we adapt to the change in our lives and our happiness comes back to sort of its, its baseline, um, which depending upon uh, the way we were raised, our genetics, uh, the way you know, our brains were constructed from birth, uh, may or may not be that high. And so our argument, though, is that the hardware may be set, meaning that our, our brains may be uh, capable of a certain range of happiness, but we have great control over the software and, and the, the prime mover or changer of the software is the things we believe we need to be happy in self. So if we were to start with the first one, uh, which I can do, um, the first belief that we that is not uh, uh, correct is that um, we believe we have to be able to solve uh, our problems in a very specific way in order to be happy. And when we don't believe we have the power to solve our problems, whatever those problems may be, we find ourselves plunged into the first of the 10 worlds, the lowest world, which is the world of hell. And so what we have, what we've re learned from the research and from observing people uh, throughout, you know, our entire, uh, the entirety of human history is that when, when people uh, have an important problem they feel they must solve in order to be happy. So, for example, maybe it is um, they don't have a job and they feel they can't be happy without a job. If, if they feel absolutely that they are powerless to solve that problem, that it is, the, it is the belief in their powerlessness that plunges them into suffering in the world of hell, which is sort of the uh, a modern day equivalent of uh, would be major depression, major depressive disorder. Uh, and, and it's really true that if you don't feel you have the power to solve your problems, it's pretty hard to be happy. But where the delusion comes in is that we believe we have to solve our problems in a particular way, right? You're faced with a problem and maybe there's door A, door B, and door C, which represent solutions to this problem. And we try them, we go through those doors and they don't work. And what we typically do when we get to door C is we go back to door A. 
thinking maybe this time it will work. And we keep rotating, you know, through the solutions that we think of as viable until ultimately we discover none of them are viable. And then we sort of sit down and feel powerless and become depressed. The, the term for this in psychology is learned helplessness. Okay, and it is, learned helplessness. it is the major cause of depression. Mm-hmm. All right. Yep. Um, and I get that, but let's give an example of, you know, just a true to life example. You mentioned like you don't, you, how about you lost your job, you have three kids, um, and you're fired and your wife or your partner, whoever it is, doesn't work and your finances are very limited and you have to pay the mortgage or you have to pay the rent. So put it in that context and what, and you believe that if you can't resolve this problem, get another job, make some money, um, that this, you're not going to be happy. Well, you're going to be hell is what you said. This is hell. Yeah. So, all right. Absolutely. And I'm not saying that a problem like you just described is a problem that you can get away with not solving. You do have to solve that problem. But the issue is, while you're attempting to solve it, are you solving it from a place where you have confidence in yourself, you have a belief that you have the power to solve it in some way, or do you feel you cannot solve that problem at all? That's the difference between how you will experience uh, the onset of that problem and the, and the time during which you're trying to solve it. Because while you're trying to solve it, you feel you have no ability to solve it. You're going to, you're going to suffer. You're going to be depressed. If while you're trying to solve that problem, you find the confidence, you believe you can find another job, you will be in pain, which is a different thing from suffering. The pain of having lost that job, of facing an uncertain future where you need to support your family uh, is very real, but you won't suffer if you believe you can solve the problem uh, ultimately. And, and what I was saying before is that, so, you know, you may feel, for example, you need to get a certain type of job. And if you okay, and you can only be happy if you get that certain type of job, and that may be you're thinking about the solution too narrowly. There, there usually are uh, other sets of solutions, solutions D, E, and F, in any particular problem that we won't even contemplate attempting for various reasons. Maybe because they, you know, to, to attempt those solutions risk too much, or maybe we think we can't do those things. We don't have the ability to do those things. Often it's when we finally fail at A, B, and C enough that we turn to D, E, and F and say, maybe we should try something that we're not comfortable with and and the real solution lies there. So I want to be very clear about this, though. I'm not suggesting that the answer is you don't have to solve important problems like that. It's just, what is your belief about your power to solve those problems? That's what determines whether those problems simply have you in pain or they're making you suffer. So it's how you solve or resolve the problem. That's the key. Not that you're not going to solve it. Yeah, okay, that's... Very clear. Yes. That's good. All right. The next one. We have 10 to get through, right? Yes. Right. <laughs> so, yes, we do. The next world is the world of hunger. And in this world, uh, people in the world of hunger tend to be obsessed with the things they want and feel that if only they could get this next thing, then they will be happy. The problem is when they get that next thing, whatever it is, it satisfies so briefly or so lightly that they quickly discarded saying, well, that must have been the wrong thing to get to make me permanently happy. I just have to find the right thing and I go on to the next thing. So people in this world tend to be constantly dissatisfied with what they achieve and what they have because there's often this wound they're trying to fill up, this need to fill something. And the core delusion that, that this world is created by is the belief that we have to get what we want to be happy. Meaning that once we, we light on something, an attachment, say, a particular job or a certain amount of money or a person that we want to be married to, 
um, that we say to ourselves, unless we get that thing, we can't be happy at all. We tend to be, become very obsessive with that. And yet when we get it, of course, because psychologically our, our baseline of happiness invariably returns, uh, even if there's a bump when we first get that attachment we want, um, we are ultimately dissatisfied because we expect more. And we're wrong to expect more. We're wrong to think that happiness lies in getting the things we want, which, of course, seems like this very basic, obvious thing that should make us happy. And our argument is it does make us happy, but only temporarily. And the mistake people in this world make is they expect it to make them happy permanently. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, that to me, I think that's the one, that's particularly in our culture or Western cultures, I should say, that's, a, that's one of our biggest issues. Or maybe uh, if, if you want a bigger house, you get a bigger house, and you need another, then, okay, that's not big enough, you have to get a bigger house, a better car, and it goes on and on, like you say. And then you just sort of acclimate to that, and then it doesn't, it's meaningless, and then you have to get married, and you get married, and you want to get divorced and a year later. So that's right. Yes, that's right. I, yeah. That's right. It's, it's based on fundamentally greed thinking what we need greed. to be happy is simply more. And, and that's just not the case. We get fooled. And even when you understand that's not the case, it's hard sometimes not to become obsessed with the things that you light on and you focus on that you want. Yes. Yes. How do uh, the, we do? I mean, that's a difficult, I think that's a very difficult one, especially here in the United States, obviously. I mean, because we, we're on the internet, television, telling us, telling us we need more and we should want more. And you see other people, it looks like they're living better uh, and they have a better situation than yours. And so you want it. And uh, it's kind of, it really is the stuff that motivates us, I think, on a daily basis. So, you know, it's... Well, in fact, that's true. And that, that the, the, world is, the world is not all bad, right? Because unless you become obsessed with getting something, obsession can power uh, the, the action you need to take to get it. And, and not everything we're obsessed with is a bad thing for us to want. Uh, the, the mistake we make is in believing that only by achieving this thing in front of us that we want can we be happy at all. And so we have to become mindful of the fact that uh, getting what we want does not produce happiness long term. And to be reminded of that all often requires us for us to look back in our history and look at all the things we've acquired up till now uh, that, that made us happy only temporarily. And the belief that it's just that we've been wanting the wrong things. And if now the thing in front of me right now, that's the right thing. And if I just get that, that will solve my problems. I will be happy. That's the delusion. And so you have to become mindful of that. It, it is to say that these things we acquire and the things we want aren't there for us to enjoy them, but not to become the source of our happiness. It's a subtle d- distinction, but an important one. And we just have to remind yeah. ourselves of that, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's in our Constitution. We have to give ourselves a break. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which I think we took very seriously, but how we pursue the happiness. And I think what you said, we have to be aware, exactly. I mean, I had read a a study that said the happiest people, I don't know if it fits into this context, are people who, in this culture, let's say, who are middle-class people who have a a good job, a nice home, and, and are comfortable and healthy, but not necessarily people who are very wealthy or, of course, people who are very poor and can't afford to, you know, feed their families, but sort of if you are able to maintain what you're talking about on some level, um, that those people are define themselves as the happiest. I think we would explain that by saying that because they have enough uh, but don't have too much that they then become obsessed with and overly attached to, they're good at appreciating what they have. And that leaps us into the sixth world, which is jumping ahead, but world of rapture where 
we, we enjoy our attachments, we feel joy when we contemplate what we have without feeling like we need to keep adding to those things in order to continue to feel joy. And, and the key to that world is to appreciate what we have. And I think that's what you're describing with those, those types of people. Yeah, to be able to be aware and to appreciate. So how do we, just taking these three, exam, these three things that we've been talking about, how do you do that? How do you yeah. raise your kids so that they will be aware and have that kind of an understanding and appreciate and be joyful about what you do have and not wanting to go right. on to next because you think that's going to make you happier? Yeah. Well, we're arguing in the book that the key to this is first to recognize that these, what we call the, the nine core delusions or nine beliefs that we all have about what we need to be happy, that we cycle through and at various times are, are, are in the grip of one or the other, uh, to become aware of them is the first step, to recognize that we really do believe these things at different times and that these beliefs are the things that fundamentally motivate all our behavior. And, and so becoming aware of them when they are, are literally operating in you and looking back and saying, oh, the reason I'm so obsessed with getting this job is because I believe this job is the key to my happiness. And, and recognizing intellectually, at least, that that's not the case. You, you have to get some experience in life under your belt to go through these things to learn that those, they're not true to learn that you get used to everything that you have and that, that your happiness is not dependent on any one thing. That's, I think, um, there's great power in becoming mindful of when these delusions are operating with, within your own life. Uh, but then, I guess to skip ahead to the, the last chapter of, of the book, The Last World, which is the world of enlightenment, which we argue is not a mystical fairy tale far off impossible to achieve state that only maybe Tibetan Buddhists meditating in caves have access to. But uh, that science is beginning to point out is a real uh, life state, a mental state that can be cultivated and has neurologic correlates that gives a perspective to all these other delusions, uh, all these other delusional beliefs about happiness that sets them in the right place. So that, for example, rather than becoming obsessed with getting what you want, you're able to enjoy what you want, but then when you lose it, let it go without suffering too much, that it teaches you how to appreciate what you have and, and, and reminds you to focus on uh, you know, what, you, what you have, which is not natural for us to do. We, we typically take for granted everything that we have. Uh, so I think the ultimate solution, what we're trying to inspire people to, to seek after, is a type of happiness that is not dependent on attachment, as the happiness in all the other nine worlds based on the nine core delusions is, but it is a happiness that comes from perceiving the world in a particular way and cultivating that perception, we think, is the real answer to establishing a happiness that, that endures. What about, I'm going to ask you just personally, so when did you, how did this mean in, in your own life? I mean, was there a moment when you realized this or, because I mean, you're a very high achiever, obviously, you're a physician and um, I, I don't even, a professor of medicine, uh, you've had all kinds of accolades, so just personally, um, well, and point. yeah, yeah, right. I, I and I write about this in the book. Actually, um, yeah. the point at which this this notion that enlightenment could be a real thing that might be sustainable happened to me. Actually, uh, occurred in my first year of medical school. Um, actually, even briefly, even earlier when I was in college, but really notably in medical school, when I was uh, before I had become a doctor or accomplished anything that I've I've accomplished, but. Uh, when I actually went through a very painful breakup with the, the first love of my life, my first girlfriend, and I, I remember very vividly, uh, I, had, I had driven to um, a beach in Chicago on the shores of Lake Michigan just to sort of try to get away and, and um, 
help myself feel better. And it was while contemplating nature that I had this, uh, this experience where um, suddenly uh, uh, everything was transformed in a moment as a result of contemplating nature. And I was feeling this incredible sense of peace and joy and awe at just the, my surroundings, the universe itself. And, and it was a, an awakening experience that, in fact, has been described in every culture and every time throughout history by different people um, that I felt was a glimpse of this life state of enlightenment. And uh, that was the beginning of my interest in uh, trying to answer the question, if I could experience that for five minutes, which is what happened, and then it just very quickly faded away, why couldn't I make that sort of my baseline life state. And uh, around that time, I'd begun interested in, in Buddhism and learning about sort of the, the non-mystical aspects of that and the psychology of that. And uh, from that, my, my co-author, Ash Aldefrawi, and I began this 20-year journey where we were looking into the research that supported um, this, this framework, this Buddhist framework of the 10 worlds uh, as a psychological framework and beginning to understand how can one elevate one's life into the world of enlightenment. And we, we discovered a lot and we write about it in the book about what anyone, you know, any individual can do who, who aspires to that life state uh, can do to sort of uh, uh, achieve it. And so for me, the, the, the birth of my interest in this came from uh, a great loss and suffering. Yeah. And the birth came at an early stage in your life. I mean, you were a young, yes. you know, a young man. So, because I think yes. of a lot of people, and you as a physician, I'm sure, encounter this, but, you know, you hear about people who are you know, diagnosed with cancer, and this was the best thing that ever happened to me, which I'm never sure why, right. but because now I appreciate <laughs> things. Now I may be, well, why did you have to wait until you were diagnosed with cancer or some terminal illness before you were able to find, as you say, the joy and be aware? Um, so, it, I mean, what you write about in the book is really important. I mean, we want to do it much earlier than much later. And unfortunately, that doesn't come to people until later lots of times. Or that's why well, I, I think see that's as a social right. worker also. Yeah. Of course, right, because people, it's natural that we really begin to value what we have only when we're threatened with its loss because we're so focused on acquiring attachments and pursuing the things we believe will make us happy. We have our heads down. We're not looking up and sort of taking a step back and thinking more broadly and actually thinking what is the best way to aim at happiness. We take it for granted. Our society, as you said, teaches us, well, it's to acquire more. But that really, that way lies uh, a very limited and temporary type of happiness. And so our hope in writing the book was to, to tell people there is more you really can hope for if you, if you choose to strive for it in a conscious, mindful way. I think it's very important in terms of like what you talk about in your book, and maybe I mentioned that a little earlier, but we really need to impart this to our children. I mean, it's, I mean you really want to start young, and somehow we get into this, you know, at six years old, you have to be doing this activity or that activity, and you have to get into an Ivy League school and, and, and on and on. And, right. I, and I think that, or whatever the goal is you think that's going to make you happy, more and more of it. Um, my kids, and I, I was guilty of it myself, would say, well, you know, I, I did this and I, I got this accolade or whatever it is, and, like, you should be happy because now I have a great resume for college. <laughs> and right, because have, yeah. these, these, you're, you're exactly right. These, these beliefs about what will make us happy, these core delusions, are so deeply ingrained in all of us. It's hard to recognize their operation, and we all are guilty of sort of pursuing these and teaching our children to value the things that we think will make them happy when we really ourselves haven't 
thought much about, read much about, or understood really what will make us happy. And so I, I absolutely agree that, you know, beginning this dialogue at, an, at a young age and helping, uh, you know, establishing and understanding ourselves of the delusional ways we seek happiness and pointing those out to our children and saying, don't fall into this trap. It's, you're, you'll always be tempted by these beliefs. So, for example, one of those beliefs that we talk about in the book is that pleasure is happiness. And, and, and we believe that this is sort of the source of a lot of, uh, you know, uh, drug addiction, alcoholism. People get addicted to physical pleasure thinking this is the happiest life that they can have is to, you know, enjoy the physical pleasure those things bring. But, of course, we know anyone who becomes addicted to those things, the, the, those lives add up to far more misery than they do actual happiness, in despite the fact that they're feeling all this pleasure. And so it's by, by warning our children, by teaching them a correct view of how to achieve happiness, uh, that I think we can set them on the path much earlier than we ourselves have been set on the path and give them a much greater shot at achieving the kind of happiness that really does endure and that isn't harmful uh, in any way, but actually helps them become their best, most joyous, wisest selves. So for you, you've had 20 years, you said. I mean, sort of, you've been on this journey yes. for 20 years. Are you, yes. do, would you say, amongst your peers or amongst your friends or your family, are you happier than the rest of them? Have they been able to do it along with you, or do you sort of apart from some of them based on your you know, ability yeah. to be able to? Yeah. <laughs> I wish they listened to me more. Uh, I, I, it turns out, you know, of the 10 worlds that my home base world, the world that I, I have the hardest time escaping is the world of learning. And in the world of learning, the delusion there is that it is by creating meaningful works and contributing value to the world that we will become happy. And, and while that we say it's a delusion, again, only because even to do those things, to create meaning, to be overly attached to meaning, uh, it, it's temporary. You have to sort of contemplate it, you know, when you do it. It isn't that it isn't a very fulfilling way to become happy, and I am very happy that way, but I will tell you that since having completed the book and, and have understood some of the insights in the 10th chapter about enlightenment and, and read a lot of the research that we think points the way to establishing that life state, I find myself feeling uh, transcendent joy far more often than I used to. It, it really requires effort. That's the thing. It's not, you know, people who say you don't, you only become happy when you don't aim at it, I think is patently false. Uh, it's, it's the way you aim at it and what you do to cultivate a, a certain perception. And as I've been practicing doing that since having written the book, I find myself in that life state far more often than I used to be. That's great. Uh, we have one minute left. And so I want to mention the book again. Uh, again, The Ten Worlds, The New Psychology of Happiness. And I've been talking to Dr. Alice Lickerman, MD. Great book, very inspirational. Give us just 30 seconds because website we can go to for the book and more about you. Absolutely. So the website is uh, www.the10worlds, all one word, .com. And anyone who's interested, if you go there, we actually put up a self-assessment that takes literally three minutes that will give you an idea of which of the 10 worlds is your home base. And then uh, if you're interested in learning more about it or validating those results, you can obviously go get the book anywhere. Books are sold, Amazon and Barnes & Noble and, and all those. So we hope people find it useful. Great. Thanks so much. Great having you on the show Thank you. Today. I really enjoyed it. Thank yep. you. Enjoyed having it. Being there. Bye. Bye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 